0: We're off to Pluto and its three moons, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. Alan Stern returns to our microphone to talk of the ninth planet at what we used to think was the outer edge of the solar system. Alan is in Florida making final preparations for launch of the New Horizons mission, our first human emissary to Pluto. He'll also talk about his recent co-discovery of two new moons circling that cold ball. And Bruce Betts hungers for your attention and lunch in What's Up. We've also got a Planetary Radio t-shirt for this week's Space Trivia Contest winner. Let's see what's happening around the solar system. Our first stop is a rock about 180 million miles away from home. Has Hayabusa touched down on asteroid Itokawa? The answer to that question was unclear as we were assembling this week's show. We do know that the troubled but plucky little Japanese probe got close and may have even succeeded at collecting some bits of Itokawa. Even as scientists continue to analyze incredibly complex radar data from the European Space Agency's Mars Express orbiter, the spacecraft has switched from looking for subsurface water to an examination of the Martian ionosphere. You can learn more about the status of its extended mission at planetary.org. The latest NASA Ambassador of Exploration got his moon rock last week. Wally Schirra, the only astronaut to fly Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions, was honored near his home in San Diego, California. Schirra commanded the Apollo 7 Earth-orbiting mission. Later, he sat at Walter Cronkite's side as Apollo 11 landed on the moon. There was no announcement about whether Paul Haney is still a turtle. Lights, camera, action. Emily Lakdawalla is back this week to explain how engineers take some of the most amazing movies in the history of rockets. I'll be back with Alan Stern in a minute.
1: Hi, I'm Emily Lockwoodwalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, during the Apollo missions, they captured cool film footage of the Saturn rocket stage separations. How was this footage captured? Some of the favorite images from the Apollo missions are video of the separation of the first and second stages of the Saturn V rocket, followed by ignition of the second stage rockets. These amazing images show the curving blue marble of Earth in the background. They were captured using 16-millimeter motion cameras mounted on the forward end of the Saturn rocket's first stage. The cameras operated for less than 30 seconds as the rocket stages separated 80 kilometers above the Atlantic Ocean. After recording, the cameras were ejected from the rocket. They were enclosed in waterproof aluminum capsules equipped with para-balloons that slowed their descent and kept them afloat once they splashed down. After they fell into the ocean, Radio beacons and die markers helped the Air Force to locate them. Nowadays, capturing film of rocket launches doesn't require such heroic efforts. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more.
0: It was a long and difficult road getting this far, but... We may now be less than two months from the launch of the fastest spacecraft in history. Speed is nice, especially since the target is distant Pluto, about six billion miles from Earth, as the interplanetary crow flies. Alan Stern is principal investigator for the New Horizons mission. He also serves as executive director of the Space Science and Engineering Division of the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Not surprisingly, we found him making final preparations at the Kennedy Space Center. Before getting to New Horizons, I congratulated Alan on his discovery last summer of two new moons of Pluto, so far known only as S-2005P1 and P2. Alan, welcome back to Planetary Radio. Uh, Sounds like your little spacecraft is going to have more to look at once it reaches Pluto.
2: Yeah, it's the kind of problem we look forward to.
0: Talk to us a little bit about this discovery of what certainly appears to be two moons, although I guess that's not fully confirmed yet to the, to the uh, satellite IAU.
2: Right. Uh, a team led by Hal Weaver and myself with uh, seven other astronomers, planetary scientists, uh, put in a proposal to the Hubble Space Telescope to look for uh, additional satellites of Pluto. The proposal was eventually accepted. Uh, the observations took place last May, just uh, a little over six months ago. Lo and behold, Hubble's an amazing tool. In eight minutes flat, it discovered two new satellites of Pluto. <laughs> eight minutes? <laughs> eight minutes on the 15th of May, and it got them both, and eight minutes on the 18th of May and confirmed them.
0: All right, and just as amazing to me is these things are tiny.
2: Well, they're not so small. You know, they're, they're, the larger of the two could be as large as 100 miles across they're they're uh, they're small well, compared to pluto but they're not you know it'd take you a while to walk across or drive across
0: no when i say tiny i mean in relationship to how far away they are that that the hubble was able to find these objects and apparently very easily at that kind of distance i mean we're getting pretty good at
2: this they're very faint and uh they're next to something much brighter pluto is uh less than 2 arc seconds away and almost 10,000 times brighter
0: and you have every reason to believe that these objects are indeed moons because they're traveling along with Pluto, right?
2: Right. i tell you what, uh, what the evidence is. We see them clocking around Pluto, unlike, uh, for example, what you would expect uh, a Kuiper Belt object that just happened to be in the background or an asteroid do. We make the assumption that they're in an orbit like Pluto's well-established moon, Charon's, that it's in the same orbital plane, and that the orbits are circular. And when we plot where those orbits would fall, it goes right to the positions that we got in the HST data. Smack on. So then wow. that, that leads us to believe it's probably real. We went back to old HST data of another team member, Mark Buies, from 2002. His data wasn't as, uh, uh, as sensitive, but lo and behold... In the places where those orbits lie, there are little bright dots right on the orbit line. Back in 2002, right where you'd expect. And at that point, uh, we decided it was pretty close to checkmate. We should go public. Mm.
0: You, ever, you ever stop and think of uh, Galileo as like a, a close personal colleague, uh, suddenly realizing that these two little dots of light are, are gravitationally tied to a much bigger one?
2: Uh, Matt, has have to say no. <laughs> never thought of Galileo as a pers- personal colleague, <laughs> but well, I'm flattered. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, You're welcome.
0: It is certainly very significant and exciting to find these additional objects as we learn more about the Kui- Kuiper Belt that Pluto is on the edge of, of course. Are they going to tell us more about Pluto?
2: I think they're going to tell us a lot more about the origin of the pluto Sharon system. Uh, for one thing, the satellites are caught in resonances, uh, resonant orbits that, that have periods that are even number, multiples of Sharons. They're probably related to the Sharon forming event. They're probably debris that got trapped in other orbits. Wow. Um, it was a part of that event. We, we've learned a few other things about them. We'll learn a lot more. We're going to have more Hubble data in February, and then we're going to propose for time uh, next year. Uh, to do physical studies of them, and I think they'll be a real boon for understanding uh, more about the system. They also uh, suggest to us, and this is very important to New Horizons, uh, that Pluto may have rings. I had not heard that. That was completely unexpected. What? Well, the the logic is pretty simple. We know that Pluto and Sharon are out there in this shooting gallery of the Kuiper Belt, mm. and when things hit, they make craters. But for these two new satellites, uh, they're small enough that the ejecta, It doesn't just fall back somewhere else on the satellite. It can get into orbit around Charon because they have almost no gravity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can get into orbit around Pluto, uh, so the debris would naturally form rings.
0: So they're going to act like like shepherd moons, possibly, as we're finding uh, at Jupiter and elsewhere? They
2: may. There's certainly likely to be source regions for rings. Uh, Those rings would be very hard to find from the Earth, but they should be a cakewalk for New Horizons.
0: I don't know why I put Jupiter ahead of, uh, gave Jupiter top billing over Saturn and talk about rings, but uh, what the heck, it's true there, too, I guess. You've called this uh, this region of space, this region of our very own solar system, the Kuiper Belt, a wild and woolly place, and uh, apparently you're getting a lot of agreement from uh, from other uh, scientists, entirely independent of your projects.
2: You no, know, I'm not surprised. It's really, uh, the, the further out we go, uh, away from the sun, the... Uh the grander and grander of the exotica.
0: You know, we've had uh, Mike Brown from Caltech on recently, mm-hmm. and uh, he, of course, is. I I would guess is excited about you about what we may find out there, and he's finding some pretty big rocks himself. And uh, he thinks that eventually we may just find, he's willing to put money on this, that we're going to find something uh, Mars-sized out there.
2: Well, that makes him about number 10 in line for that.
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: uh, uh, Fifteen years ago, I was publishing papers in Icarus to just that effect, that we should find things Earth-sized, in fact. And there's pretty good smoking gun evidence as to why.
0: When we return, Alan Stern will give us a status report on New Horizons departing for Pluto, its moons, and beyond in just a few weeks. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society,
3: the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets, We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We
1: didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Our guest is Alan Stern, Executive Director of the Space Science and Engineering Division of the Southwest Research Institute and Principal Investigator on the New Horizons mission to Pluto and the even more distant Kuiper Belt. I asked Alan to put this new spacecraft in the context of past planetary exploration missions.
2: Well, New Horizons is, uh, is a mission in the spirit of the original mariners and the uh, pioneers in and, and, uh, Voyager mission. It's uh, the first time since really since Voyager left in the late 1970s that we sent an expedition to reconnoiter a new planet.
0: It is a flyby mission, but I think you and others have pointed out that you're going to actually have Quite a bit of observation time as you uh, reach Pluto.
2: That's right, Matt. Uh, we specifically designed this to, uh, to, to uh, uh, circumvent the criticism at the time that Pluto missions were struggling to get funded that, well, it's all for a weekend at Pluto. In fact, uh, we have uh, very sensitive instruments, long focal length cameras, etc., that will turn this into a five-month encounter with the Pluto system.
0: Uh, Using these instruments, you hope to reach Pluto, I guess. I mean, there was a lot of emphasis, uh, uh, particularly on the political side, that we needed to get this mission on its way. Before Pluto gets much farther away from the sun in its regular orbit, are you going to get out there before the atmosphere is all frozen out?
2: We're going to try. Um, I can't promise you that, uh, but we're sure going to try. No one knows when that atmospheric collapse will take place. There are some models that indicate it could take place while we're en route, and other models that indicate it could be as much as 20 years away. Hmm.
0: As we said, though, this this mission is going to go much farther out. Uh, you plan to be getting data back from New Horizons uh, for long past the Pluto encounter.
2: Well, that's right. We. Uh It's the Pluto-Kuiper Belt mission, and uh, after our Pluto encounter, we will fire our engines and fly probably two to three years to reach a Kuiper Belt object, and after that, fly by. If we have the fuel and the spacecraft in good health, we'll fire the engines again and target a second Kuiper Belt system. Do you
0: have an idea of what object you're going to be going after, or is that going to be determined uh, further along in the mission?
2: No, much later. We don't ex- need to pick those objects until uh, literally uh, the time of the Pluto encounter. And because we're learning so much every year, it would, it would really be premature to pick now.
0: I asked you what those new moons are going to tell us about Pluto. What, what is the Kuiper Belt going to tell us about the formation of our solar system, or what do you hope it might tell us?
2: Well, it's going to tell us a lot about the uh, early stages of planet formation because this, the Kuiper Belt is a region where planet formation... Uh, initiated, and we grew from dust grains to boulders to mountain-sized objects to to comet-sized objects to worldlets. Uh, In fact, most of the objects uh, that we're interested in in the Kuiper Belt are technically called planetary embryos, objects that were on their way to planethood when something arrested their growth. Uh, We don't know what that may have been, but the important thing scientifically is this allows us to go back into those early stages of planetary gestation to study these objects the same way that a paleontologist would be excited about finding uh, the fetus of a dinosaur. Hmm.
0: Tell us about the current status of the mission. I guess uh, you you might have had a couple of scary moments there. It's been in the news that uh, your upper stage, the, the centaur, that is actually going to kick New Horizons on its way, Probably saying that it was in jeopardy is too strong, but it uh, kind of got caught up in some uh, some labor difficulties at Boeing.
2: Oh, let me uh, let, let me tell you, all the hardware is down here at the Cape, uh, the Atlas rocket, the spacecraft, uh, the solid rocket boosters, the Centaur, the upper stage. Uh, the business with Boeing had nothing to do with the Centaur at all. It had to do with the solid, solid rocket upper stage. Oh. We have hundreds of people working on New Horizons, literally hundreds, to bring it to culmination with launch. I understand we have five workers that went on strike. You know, we've, we've worked through that. Uh, we, we brought on some people with a great deal of experience to replace those five, and we brought on some additional inspectors.
0: So we're counting down to launch, and your launch window opens up in early January?
2: It opens on the 11th of January, and we have a 35-day clock. Of course, with every passing day, the our ability to get to Pluto declines. Uh, the first 18 days we can get there in nine years. And then Jupiter's not in as good a position after that. And then we can go in 10 years for a few days, and then 11 years for a few days, and then 12 years, so forth, until we run the clock out on the 14th of February. So we're very hopeful that uh, uh, we can launch in the beginning of the window. Well, we'll
0: hope that exactly that happens on the 11th or very soon after. Nine years to get to Pluto uh, seems like uh, a, a real express.
2: Uh, It'll be the fastest spacecraft ever launched, uh, and by a long shot. I I know when I was a boy, uh, it was awe-inspiring to see Apollo astronauts lift off at 25,000 miles an hour and take three days to reach the moon. New Horizons will pass the orbit of the moon the same day that we launch. We take off at 2 in the afternoon, and later that same evening, before midnight, uh, we will pass the moon. I'm sure you remember Galileo took six years to reach Jupiter. and Cassini took four. We'll do it in 13 months flat. Uh, it's really a screamer.
0: That's amazing. So it's not just your your trajectory; you've just got a a, a real good kick from this rocket.
2: Well, we built uh, the smallest spacecraft that we could get away with mm. uh, intentionally, so that uh, with a very large launch vehicle, the combination's ferocious. We get the speed to cross the entire solar system in record time.
0: So let's say that you do get there in nine years. You uh, sadly you do have a little bit of a wait between now and then, and you're going to keep busy uh, doing lots of other stuff.
2: Lots of other stuff, and paying attention to uh, new horizons
0: yeah, monitoring the spacecraft. Uh, tell us a little bit about your responsibilities now as principal investigator as as we head toward launch
2: well, as we, uh, you know in the last uh, couple of months uh, we're we're really just making sure that the spacecraft has uh, uh, finished all of its testing, same for the launch vehicle, and that uh, we have all of our mission operations plans. Uh, firmly in place so that when we're uh, out of the box, we're ready to fly it. We have a Jupiter encounter that's only a year away.
0: That is amazing. Uh, Alan, you've got a lot of other stuff going on. I guess with uh, maybe a minute left, I want to ask you about something much closer to home and uh, much closer to the center of our solar system. You are still uh, actively looking for vulcanoids uh, between Mercury and the sun.
2: Well, we have a plan. Uh, We have a uh, secret plan to go back and look for vulcanoids again uh, in a couple years, and uh, I expect there's a fair chance we might find them. I Uh, think it's a little bit like the satellites of Pluto, you know, uh, persistence pays. I
0: take it uh, that being a secret plan, you can't exactly talk about it on the radio. Not just yet. Okay. All right. Well, we, we knew that we'd be having you back soon enough anyway. Uh, good luck. Hope things keep, uh, keep moving along smoothly there toward the opening of that launch window on January 11th. We will definitely be back to talk to you about this. And uh, it is an extremely exciting mission, and we will uh, let people know that they can visit planetary.org, where you may, in fact, be listening to this radio program to learn more about the mission. Of course, we'll also put up the uh, link to the New Horizons site there as well.
2: Matt, Uh, thanks for all your interest.
0: Alan, thank you very much, and good luck. Dr. Alan Stern is now the executive director of the Space Science and Engineering Division at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, but he is also the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission, lifting off soon, we hope, from Kennedy Space Center, headed for the outer reaches of the solar system. We'll be right back with Bruce Betts in this week's edition of What's Up? After this, return visit from Emily.
1: I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. How do we capture video from launching rockets? There is now a private company called Ecliptic Enterprises that is making a profitable business from putting cameras on launch vehicles. Ecliptic's rocket cams have been mounted to Delta IIs, threes and IVs, to Atlas IIs, threes and fives, on Spaceship One, and on the space shuttle tank and solid rocket boosters. The cameras are tiny, weighing less than a hundred grams, and can radio color images and even sound directly back to Earth as the rocket lifts off. Or they can store the data for later download. The information that these cameras return as a routine part of space launches will be of incalculable value in diagnosing the causes of launch vehicle mishaps. They will also give human watchers the vicarious thrill of soaring into space. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more planetary radio.
0: Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. We're joined by Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who's going to tell us all about what's up in the night sky and maybe some other stuff. How you doing?
3: I'm hungry. How are you doing? I'm hungry, too. People don't care. But what they do care about (laughs) is that Mars is still beautiful. It has faded some. Hungry for the night sky. Oh, that's much better. They are hungry for the night sky. They are hungry for Mars and its yellowish-orange... Spaghetti sauce type color. <laughs> okay, you really are hungry. <laughs> All right. Mars rising in the... Uh, it'll be already up in the east after sunset, looking still very bright and orangish. And you will see it in the opposite side of the sky from where you can see Venus at the same time just after sunset in the west looking like an incredibly bright whitish star. Also Saturn rising later in the evening in the east-northeast. And uh, we've got Jupiter very low before dawn, very low in the east-southeast. Uh, we do have a meteor shower coming up in uh, a couple weeks, depending on when you're listening to this. The Geminids will peak on December 14th, uh, one of the best traditional meteor showers of the year, uh, sometimes up to f- uh, 40 to 60 meteors per hour. But mm. uh, it's near a full moon this year, so it's going to be tough to see. Oh. Still, you can go out there, and stare at the sky, relax, and watch for meteors. We'll also have another meteor shower uh, in early January that won't have a Full moon, so and you'll we'll remind me. You'll remind us of these. Yeah, yeah okay. I'll check back with the, on both of those. On to this week in space history: in 1971, Mars Two became the first artificial object, at least made by humans, to hit Mars. <laughs> to hit Mars. Yeah, it was supposed to, you know, land, but but it did hit it. Yeah. So technically, score one for the Soviets. Yeah. Random space fact. Now, I really worked on this one for you, Matt. Really? Yeah. Thank you. You said how much you enjoy this kind of thing, so I did my own playing around with some numbers. My appetite is whetted. Well, it was already, but go ahead. I'm hungry. All right. All right. Well, if you're hungry, then if you picture yourself as a giant ball of food, mm-hmm. that won't be helpful. Like, like. But, okay. Okay. But if the sun were as big in diameter as I am. So, yeah. 6 feet, 1.82 meter, meters. If I were just extending my arms and surrounded by sun, the earth, the earth would be about the diameter of a U.S. penny. Wow. Or about a marble, the size of a, of a marble.
0: I see. I, you're right. I do love this stuff. Common terms of measurement. When you put it
3: in the you know the bread box uh, metaphor. I, I just love this stuff. Bread box so, is somewhere in between. But I've got more for you because that how far away... Would you have to put that in our scale solar system? Oh, wow! you would have to put it uh, over 200 yards away, over two football fields, no matter what kind of football you're playing. Let's do this after lunch. All right, I see what you're saying. We can move on. You sure you don't want to know how far the no, nearest no, star was? No, no, no. I'm be?
0: saying we should do this after lunch. You'll be the sun, oh, okay. and I'll go out 200 yards. We'll put a penny down.
3: <laughs> All right. And no, no. You be the nearest star. Because you'll have to go thirty-three thousand miles away. <laughs> okay, I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> so basically, nearest star at that scale would be—it's really far away. Space. So as sphere. far as the—I uh, guess that was really my point. Okay, moving right along to the trivia question—we asked you how many parsecs in a light year. Trick question. Well, kind not of, really.
0: I mean, it's a legitimate. Not if you answer. bond
3: with fractions or decimals. That's right. Yes, it does. It's different than people would normally ask because that's the kind of people we are.
0: We, we did have a couple of people who were disturbed by this, this is because they knew quite accurately that there isn't more than one parsec in a light year, <laughs> and uh, they didn't want to think fractionally, I guess, but most people did, and we also got people who uh, told us uh, quite precisely, some out to like 12 decimal points, how many parsecs are in a light year. Should I tell you about our winner? Oh, please do. It's Ian Chapman of Hartford in the United Kingdom. Ian, who got it right? 0.306 parsecs in a light
3: year. Indeed, oh. which means there's about 3.26 uh uh, light years in a parsec,
0: and we also had people who came up with uh, rounded to 0.307, And you know, come on, we're we're talking thousands here, so we're we're giving it to uh we're giving it to Ian and all the rest of you. If you had dot three oh six or dot three oh seven, uh, you won too. But only Ian gets a Planetary Radio T-shirt.
3: Congratulations! A parsec, by the way, short for the parallax of one arc second. If you imagine the Earth uh, kind of halfway around the this, or one place relative to the sun, you go a quarter of the way around. So they're about a AU apart astronomical unit, the average distance from the earth to the sun. You create an angle from there going off into space to an object that is one parsec away. That angle will be one arc second. Hmm. So anyway, this is the derivation of why people use parsecs, another term used in addition to light years when measuring things that are really far away.
0: I also want to thank the couple of people who wrote in with um, apologies for George Lucas and Star Wars and the <laughs> Millennium Falcon, and one who even directed us to a website that explained why it's okay to say that the Millennium Falcon made the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs or less than 12 or something like that. And it actually is, it's a pretty good rationalization to save George.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a tough thing. This was the issue we discussed where uh, they reference parsecs like it is a uh, not a unit of distance. And so, but they have this very strange interesting rationale well it's not that interesting but it's strange so anyway it's only a movie (laughs) oh Oh, yeah we're gonna get mail sure it is all the star wars we can't believe you just said it's only a movie (laughs) all right six movies what do you want laugh it up furball (laughs) moving right along next trivia question uh perhaps less controversial but who knows how many nasa flight directors have there been for human spaceflight missions in the history of the program? I don't know. Well, okay. (laughs) You, along with everyone else, can look it up, or the NASA flight directors can contact us themselves. How many NASA flight directors have there been since the beginning of the program? It's for human spaceflight only, so these are the people controlling the, uh, the human missions from the ground. How do they enter? Go to org slash radio and find out how to enter and send us your information. And please, when you send your trivia contest uh, information in, tell us where you listen to us. We'd appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you to all of you who've been doing that. Get this one to us by Monday, November 28th at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Monday the 28th at 2 p.m. Pacific time.
3: All right, everybody. Go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about lunch. Thank you, and good night.
0: I'm way ahead of you. He's Dr. Bruce Betts, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society. He joins us every week, usually just before lunch, on What's Up. Where will we take you next time? I don't know. It's a big universe, but we hope you'll come along for the ride. And we may have an interesting announcement about our trivia contest. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week, everyone.